Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. All right, I uh, want to uh, bring on my next guest, my first guest today, uh, with an apology for making him <laughs> sit and... Uh, I got going on there. I just, uh, Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Tom, sorry for making you wait all that time. Hey, that's okay, Scott. You're on a roll. Well, you know what? It's, uh, it, it ties in, though, to what we're talking about. You know, the, the story out today is that the new living wage in Hamilton is $4 higher than the provincial minimum wage. It's now over $20 an hour. And I mean, obviously, this is an area that is uh, dear to your heart to be talking about this and to try to to deal with this. It, it It's just that every single thing seems to be conspiring these days to make all of our lives more expensive, including those who are trying to live on minimum wage. Yeah, exactly. And the numbers really reflect that nowhere in Ontario can the minimum wage really sustain an individual or a family. And, and so the living wage sets a higher standard. It's, it's not mandated. It's not legislated like the minimum wage is, but it's really a call out to employers, to progressive employers to say, yeah, we value our employees. Uh, we think they need to earn this much uh, to meet their basic needs and to participate in the community. And the living wage is an evidence-based calculation, unlike the minimum wage. It, it really looks at costs and communities of various sizes across the province and it sets that rate uh based on on what it actually costs to live in and participate and and so here in hamilton right now that number is twenty dollars and eighty cents an hour a worker needs to earn at their job in order to uh meet that pretty much of a no frills budget tom who who should if we're going to do this if, if if ever the city or the province or whoever was going to do this who should qualify should every worker be qualifying for living wage and, and the reason i ask that is because oftentimes it's pointed you know i don't know that companies should be paying living wage for example to high school students or people who are not having to live on their wage how, how would we determine or should it just be blanket that everybody gets it yeah, and that's a really great question, Scott, because that has uh, really that uh, there are student positions out there, um, and some of them have training uh, aspects to it. And there are benefits to, to taking on that role. Um, but if we're looking at longer-term uh, student positions, say working at a fast food or, or in the retail market, you know, we don't know exactly what those uh, what those students are facing at home. They may be helping uh, their families who, who are also working low-paid jobs. And, and so it, it's very much dependent, I think, upon uh, individual circumstances. But uh, we, we like to encourage uh, all employers to, to also pay students uh, a living wage as well when they're able to do so. The... One of the challenges, I think, and I, I don't know if you agree or disagree with this, but one of the challenges is, um, as it's pointed out here, that the living wage in Hamilton would be about $4 more than the minimum wage. A lot of people point out that, you know, when our minimum wage nudges up bit by bit, that's, you know, that's one thing. But if all of a sudden everybody at the minimum scale got a $4 increase, that would lead to further inflation which would then make it difficult for the people who are on the living wage because then the living wage would go up again. It would be an endless and rapid cycle. How, how would we get around that? Yeah, and I, I think that's 
also been a, a long standing argument. Um, but, you know, we see inflation going up all the time. Here in Hamilton, our housing prices have soared, um, particularly over the last few years. And, you know, it, it doesn't have necessarily anything to do with uh, increases in, in salaries. It, it's real. There's a number of factors at play. Uh, you know, greed might be part of it as well. And and so I think, you know, when we're looking at uh, the grocery bills or we're looking at increases in in rent and, and other costs we're seeing across across the board, you know, workers need to be able to to meet their needs. Uh, we've seen so many people become homeless over the last couple of years and precisely uh, because they're not earning enough at their jobs uh, because social assistance benefits are too low. Uh, you know, I, I think we really need to look at how we could become a more equitable society and, and living wage helps us do that. Mm. And we have lots of employers in Hamilton who agree, who've stepped up and, and we're hoping even more will, will take the plunge and say, yeah, we want to pay our employees a living wage. We see a benefit in it not only for our bottom line, because there's less turnover, uh, there's less training costs when, um, when employees stick around uh, with an organization longer, but they also feel valued and they work harder. Um, we know when employees are earning a living wage, that's also money that's being redistributed in the local economy to drive economic growth uh, as people purchase goods and services, and it's also creating jobs. So overall, I think living wage is a good economic news story for our community. Let me just pick up one thing you just said right at the end of there where it's creating jobs. If a company had, let's say, 20 employees, or just pick a random made-up fictional company that had 20 employees and they paid minimum wage to their employees, and then suddenly they had to now pay $4 more per employee to bring them up to uh, to the living wage, would many of those companies not just get rid of a few of those employees in order to fund that increase, so it would actually lose jobs, would it not? Yeah, that hasn't been our experience. And and we've been working with uh, local businesses over the last several years, uh, many of whom have adopted living wage policies. And and, and quite frankly, the opposite is true. Uh, We've seen in many circumstances new employees being hired um, because there are cost savings when uh, there isn't the level of turnover, particularly in the retail or or um, uh, fast food sectors, you know, living wage actually benefits local companies. And, uh, and, and so the, those are certainly some of the uh, things we're talking about right now during, uh, as, as we release the new living wage number. Mm. Uh, people can read a lot more about this. Go to thespec.com. Hamilton's new living wage surpasses $20 an hour. Uh, you can read about that, uh, Tom, I'm, I think is, yeah, there is. Tom's quoted in the story as well. Uh, no surprise there. Uh, Tom, listen again, sorry for making you wait so long, but really appreciate you coming on today and chatting about this. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Good talking to you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I said before the break, and I'll say it again, uh, the next few minutes, we're going to be talking about something that is really unpleasant. I'm just going to give you fair warning. And I'm not being ironic. I'm, I'm being ha- absolutely serious. It's uh a very rough topic, but I also think it's a really important topic. So if you are easily upset or, or even frankly, marginally upset, you, you may be upset by this. But uh, the headline in the National Post, I watched Hamas hack innocents to death. The worst part was their glee. Uh, yesterday, the Israeli consulate in Toronto 
had a number of journalists there to watch video of what happened on October the 7th. This was video captured by security cameras and Hamas themselves and others. And Sabrina Madeau was, uh, she's calling us with the National Post, was there. Um, she joins us now. Sabrina, how are you today? Uh, I'm doing well considering. How are you? Well, I, when I say how are you today, I mean, that's a, obviously a throwaway question. But after what you've written about, what you described watching, uh, it's a legitimate question. Is this, this does not sound like the kind of thing when you go to lie down in bed last night and you just sort of close your eyes and forget about it. No, um, definitely I saw things I'll remember for life. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of very experienced journalists in that room. I will say not all of them made it through the entire footage. Um, and there were definitely tears from quite a few of them as well. Uh, so it was very shocking, devastating uh, footage. But like you had said, it's um, important to talk about um, because people need to know what happened on October 7th. Okay, so why, we'll get to what you saw in a second, but why do you say it was important? Because I have read a number of comments on social media, which is not the greatest place to, you know, to find comments, whatever else, but that this was just propaganda and this was hand-picked, selected stuff by the Israeli government and it was designed to upset you. Why was this important for you to see it? I would say, A, that it's not propaganda. This has been, some of these video clips have already been out on social media. Um, Others have been released by family members. Um, They're atrocities that actually happened. And that's why it's important for journalists to see this um, because there, there is a very large contingent out there who does not think that everything that happened on October 7th happened. And they think that a lot of it is simply propaganda coming from the Israeli government, which it isn't. The other reason why it's important is um, there's also a perception in some quarters that this was just another um, attack or incident in the Israel-Palestine war. Um, And what happened on October 7th wasn't war. It was terrorism. it, it was so far beyond any standard rules of engagement that it helps explain why this time is different and why Israel really has no choice but to eradicate Hamas, um, who have said they will commit these sorts of acts over and over again. All right, I'm, I'm asking you this next question with a little bit of uh, hesitancy only because I've read your piece. and um, But you know what, as I say, I, I, I assume that people heard me when I say that, you know, this is, this is rough. So if you don't want to hear this, now's the time to step away for four or five minutes. But what, what, what did you see? And we don't really need every single detail, but mm-hmm. like a breakdown of what the stuff was that you saw on those videos. Um, the broad strokes, and again, I won't go too into detail. People can read your radio. column if they want more specifics. People but can anyway. read yeah. the specifics in the National Post, but, um, Everything from what happened at the Nova Music Festival, which was essentially a mass shooting event um, where people were hunted down in fields, to the terrorists um, going into very peaceful communities that looked like an average day, um, entering people's homes, um, again, hunting them until they found them, killing them, torturing them. Um, If they couldn't find them, they would light their homes on fire so that the fire would find them. And um, just over the course of the 43 minutes of footage, we were shown 138 people either be murdered or 
their remains after being murdered. And a lot of those remains were brutalized and I'd say unidentifiable. They're still trying to identify um, everyone who was a victim that day. Uh, So it really showed the extent of the horror of what happened. And you point out that, uh, I mean, as bad as this is, and and I think if I remember, uh, I'm just scrolling through right now, but you, you describe it sort of more like, less like soldiers and more like serial killers doing this. But the part of it is the reaction from the members of Hamas as they're doing this that really struck you. Yes, um, and like you said, it was more like serial killers uh, in a horror movie, the way that they hunted and terrorized their victims. Um, But what was more shocking than any sort of graphic violence or the gore was the glee and euphoria and, dare I say it, the fun had by Hamas during this time. Um, They filmed themselves, uh, they were cheering, they would toy and play with the bodies of their victims and their body parts. Uh, they would pose for selfies. At times, they seemed like they were the ones that were partying at music festival. Uh, that, in their eyes, they enjoyed this and they had a good time. And this was, this wasn't an act of resistance. It wasn't an act of war that they had to do. It was something they took pleasure in. That's what was truly disturbing. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, neither you nor I nor I hope anybody listening can wrap our head around this thought process. But why? Even if somehow in an act of war, and I get what you're saying, this wasn't, but even in an act of war, I just can't imagine why you would take a selfie of someone that you had to kill on the battlefield. This is entirely different. When you would ever pull up a photo like this on your phone, like it just, it's mind blowing the thought process and the sickness that is behind this. Yes, they filmed the entire thing. There were audio recordings of them phoning home to their families celebrating, bragging about how many um, Jewish people they had murdered that day. Uh, It was really for them a celebration um, because they're just so full of hatred. And again, these aren't soldiers. These are terrorists. So one of the things you mentioned in your piece is about the idea of these, this footage, this whole series of things being made public and that Canadians should watch this if they see it. It's a really rough thing to say. I, I, again, I know exactly what you're saying I, I just, I can't imagine, I know why it would be valuable. It's the same reason I suspect in a slightly, well, not a slightly, in a very different way. When we watch the opening scenes, for example, of say Saving Private Ryan, and for that 20 minutes, you can grasp what happened in World War II on, in Normandy or on Juno Beach or Dieppe or wherever, you get that sense. Uh, this is real life though. I don't know that there are too many people, even if they had the opportunity, that would do this, that would watch this. I think you're probably right on that count, but, and I completely understand why people would either not want to or would not find themselves able to, but who in particular I hope would are those who either are in denial about what happened or who... um, see the attacks as some sort of like righteous resistance Mm. because those are the people that really need to see it so they know what they're defending. Well, where did I read today? And I'm sorry, there's, you're just like, there's this flood of stuff, as you know, these days that you're just seeing, but there was a a group of academics and activists who signed something talking about, we need to contextualize this. And I'm thinking, you know what, before you send out a public letter, now that this footage exists, Maybe you should be required, before we accept a letter from you, you have to watch this and then decide if you still want to sign your name to it. Yeah, I could not agree more. um, Because again, I think there are people who are under the impression these were just, you know, your average acts of war, 
when I would liken them more to something like a mass shooting at a public elementary school um, or terrorist attacks on 9-11, those really, really disturbing, unjustifiable acts. The, The other part about this that I'm really interested in is this is Israel that showed these. Israel clearly, for them to take this step, they, their government, Israeli people, Jewish people, must be feeling what a lot of us think they must be feeling, which is, forgive the poor choice of words, but really under the gun, like really like there is a lot of stuff going on directed at them and people are not believing that they are frightened by what's happening. Absolutely. Um, The Israeli officials are very clear. The point wasn't to shock or horrify, of course, that's going to happen. Um, But it was so that journalists could go back and share with the public what had happened um and i think another really important point is all the footage we saw had been approved by um impacted family members of the victims i didn't know that and the family members wanted this out there um because they wanted people to bear witness and know what happened in the hopes that it will never happen again that is sabrina meadow Uh, i would encourage you uh, again it'll take a bit of an iron stomach not gonna lie Uh, her piece is pretty raw and pretty graphic but i would encourage you to read it it's in the national post it's on the post uh, website i watched Hamas hack innocence to death the worst part was their glee uh sabrina listen i appreciate you taking time to talk about this today thank you thanks for having me it's um you know and look my, my argument on this one, for those who say it was just Israeli, just Jewish propaganda, is, first of all, pull your head out of your butt. Honestly, it, it, if you want to believe that, then go watch this. I am guaranteeing you that if you are someone who is saying that the Israeli consulate would open their doors and let you see this footage, they would, ha- I'm sure not happily, but they would be willing to show you this. And if you, and, and from everything I've read, I was not there, but I've, I've watched a number, I've read a number, I've heard a number of the journalists who were uh, with their recountings of this. And they're sort of all over the map as far as where they, what, what papers and media outlets they come from. If you can watch this from everything I've seen and say, oh, didn't affect me at all. That was fine. That's just, you know, that's just commonplace warfare battlefield. I, I, I just, I just don't, from everything I've seen, I just don't believe that. And, and because you don't like what the images are going to show, simply saying it's propaganda, that doesn't undo what happened. That doesn't undo what happened. Just, you can't just uh, wash it away by calling it propaganda and then pretending like it doesn't exist anymore or that people shouldn't watch it or there should be no response to it. If you want to call it propaganda, okay, fine. But that doesn't erase what's on the videos. And yeah, we can have a discussion about what the response, what the reasonable response should be. But I think that if this had happened in Canada, if this had been, I mean, it's a crazy thing because it wouldn't, but if, if the states had sent people across into Canada and killed 1,400 people in the way that Sabrina was describing and massacred people who were innocents, I'm reasonably sure that we wouldn't be sitting here saying, oh, you know what, let's, let's just stop because, you know, they're not going to stop, but we should because we should. 
we would say, no, we have to eliminate that threat from ever happening again. We just would. Uh, go read the piece. Go read the piece. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Great Cup is coming up November the 19th, a couple of weeks from now. And had the world been spinning on a proper axis, as happened a couple of years ago, the Hamilton Ticats would still be alive and would hopefully be playing in that game. Alas, not everything works out the way it was planned. And the Ticats lost on the weekend on Saturday to Montreal. Their season is done. They will not be participating so what now? Well, let me bring in Steve Milton. He longtime journalist, Hall of Famer from the Hamilton Spectator. Steve, how are you today? Okay, Scott. How are you doing? I am better probably than any member of the Ticats who is now having to think about the fact that they could be letting the Argos use their dressing room at the Grey Cup. Oh, that's hilarious, you know, really, when you think about it. And it's, <laughs> you know, I'm calling this the uh, Argos suck bowl if they get in, I mean, which, yeah. which is exactly what happened in uh, 1996. Yes. The Argos came in under Flutie, a similar type of record. I think they were 15-3 that year. They were were really good. And and in the middle of their dominant period of of the Doug Flutie years, and and the whole place was one of the great, great cups of all time. It kind of got lost in all the troubles of the CFL before and after it. But uh, the whole place just, every time they got the ball, it was Argos suck, you know, because everybody was so upset that it was them. That was in there. Now it's an Ivor win, of course, and and uh, I think in a year in which it's almost fitting, though, isn't it? I think in a year in which they, uh, which the Argos won um, the uh, Labor Day Classic uh, quite handily, uh, and the Ticats were what three and six at home, like just squandered home, home field advantage. It's almost uh, some kind of uh, karmic justice. poetic, almost yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. poetic justice that that. That it, it could be the Argos, or even even the Alouettes. Those teams still don't like each other too. Remember how many times the the Ticats and Alouettes have played in in the playoffs? With, with, until recently, the Ticats winning most of them. Yeah, well, that years. was the Osbaldiston kick against the Alouettes is one of the most thought, famous and, recent yeah, that ones. Yeah, started but... a string of uh, I think a string of I think six in a row that mm. that, that Hamilton had won in the playoffs against them, and then, and now Montreal is, you know, they're feeling uh, obviously pretty good about themselves, and and. Uh, you know, I mean, you can tell by the uh, the ticket sales so far in Toronto that um, more people from Montreal are coming. Two things. More people from Montreal are coming because of the second year in a row and because, of, you know, they, they had a pretty good game. It was very entertaining. You know, from their standpoint, uh, a good entertaining game. It wasn't much from Hamilton's standpoint uh, to beat Hamilton. And, and, uh, and some of the increase, because it was before Montreal even got in, uh, that they had gone up to around 20,000. Um, some of that increase has come from just within Toronto, the organization, which both, and why I'm saying this so long windedly, Scott, is it kind of leans towards uh, maybe a, a, a good sign for people traveling to the Grey Cup here. Could be, yeah, no, for Could sure, be, you know, for sure. So. Well, the other the other irony, before we get onto that, the other irony yeah. is two years ago when the Ticats lost the team they lost to was coached by Mike O'Shea, who probably is the most hated former Ticat of all time. 
uh, or certainly in that mix. And now you could end up having Toronto celebrating spraying champagne in your locker room. I mean, it's just, it's, it's rich in so many ways that nobody wants to consider around here. Well, as writers, we like it, right? But I think it's the rest of Hamilton doesn't like it at all. I Uh, I would not think so. We always have a pretty good story, right? And, and whether it's negative or positive and, well, what happens if it turns out that it is Winnipeg and Toronto? As I say, the most hated former Ticat versus the most hated team. People around here, their heads will explode. Well, that's right. And, and, and you know, like, however you slice it, there's an ex-Ticat going to be yep. a quarterback of the other team, of the Western team. Because the numbers one and two in, in, uh, in uh, BC are, are uh, yep. former Ticats and, and, of course, Zach. Uh, coming back in and and uh, yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, it's uh, you know, if you don't want this to happen, don't go and eight above the, against the two teams above you. That's a well. Let, let's go there. Um, there has been a lot of discussion in the last couple of days about this, and I want to hear from you because you are yeah. the dean of football in this city. There, I, I, I was on the sh- the air the other day, and I had forgotten this, and I pulled it up on the air, and it was the record of the Ticats year by year for the last 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. And other than one great year where they went 15-3, and three, this team, this franchise, has been mediocre or worse every other year, near 500 or below 500. Mm-hmm. And it got me wondering whether, you know, is, is this a player thing? Is this that the players aren't good enough? Or is this something deeper that suddenly has to be looked at and say, something is just not clicking that we are not making this work? Yeah, I think, I think there's both things there. Um, I think the players have been good enough uh, for the most part. I remember, though, in those 10 years, uh, in the last 10 years, they've been in the Grey Cup four times. And two, they could have won, should have won, right? Uh, two very controversial plays. Uh, the other two, they got wiped out in. Uh, and you could say, well, they come out of the East. That's true. But, but one of the things is they've, they've got strong at the end of the year, which this year they did not do. It's the first time in a long time they haven't got better in the second half. First time, I think, of six years that they, they haven't really got significantly. They are better in the second half this year, but they, you know, they ended the season with three losses exactly the way they started. But their problem for, for some reason has been starting the season. You know, how many times have you gone uh, a one and two, oh and three, other than, as you say, the magical 15 and three year and Zach's year before he got hurt in, in whatever the 2014, the first year in the, uh, the answer to your question, the, by the way, is many, 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 <laughs> many, 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 many. I don't have the right. number in front, but it seems every year they're oh and two or oh and three to start. Oh, uh, there's almost always oh and two. And, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of one and twos and, one and threes and own threes and all of that kind of thing. And I, I think that's a preparation function. And I think uh, there's a lot of uh, problems they had this year that were coaching functions. I think there are failures to adjust at, at certain levels, uh, even on defense, which was better than <clears throat> that had some great long stretches during the season. But even then there was some adjustment problems, especially late in the game. They kept, I, what's bothered me this year, uh, it's slightly different than last year, but, but the same concept and I think you and I have talked about this on the air before, which is the repetitiveness of the same problems. Yeah. You know, you know, I mean, now part of this, I think you got to start with injuries on this one, but I think what you're looking to should, should the, somebody's head have to roll here. Yeah. There, there has to be for sure. Uh, you're going to, you can't sort of come back with everybody the same. And I'm talking about in the operations staff 
and have Tommy Condell be the only person who paid the price, right? Well, clearly I mean, that was not the solution. I mean, it may have helped. I think the offense was a oh, little it better. Helped a lot. Oh, but... it helped a lot. But I shouldn't say get rid of but bringing in Scott in, I'm not saying it's getting rid of Tommy. But, but uh, even, you know, I mean, I have to give Milanovic a lot of room here because uh, Milanovic, because he, he did a tremendous, you know, I watched what he, but he could only institute he never. He. I don't think he changed more than about thirty uh, percent of the things. You just can't without spring training or without a training camp. You just can't because you can't get to the basic philosophy. You can't change a basic philosophy during the season. And uh, um, you know, you, you they. I thought they looked fairly fairly good most of the time, but at the end they still only got three. And that that part of that came down to uh, to uh, execution by players. I mean, two key plays changed the game around completely. One. Changed the game on the bench. And that was the first fumble by Keandre Smith, who's going to be a star in this league and is already showing something. But he has fumbled five times this year, and I think every one of them except one was from the same purpose, which is was from the same action, which is to he was trying too hard to make that extra yard. You gotta know when to uh, you know, to, to fold up and, and and that's what happened in this one. And then that fired up the bench of Montreal. Not the crowd so much. They were still nervous. But when they when there was a tipped interception, uh, and then and then they scored on the very next play, Montreal that changed everything. Brought the crowd back into it. They'd been a little tense, tense because you know they've they've seen things before. They're not they weren't 100 percent believing in the Owls, even though they'd won you know five in a row or whatever. Um, and, and that changed everything. And that's going on a lot this year. Interceptions, tipped balls. Um, uh, not a big stop. I mean, they were they got it to eight points at one point, uh, undeservedly, but it was there. And you know, you never know. You know, that's mm. why they play the game. So, and and again, you know, they they uh, they have a, uh, um, you know, they just they can't score from inside the forty. Um, so yeah, I think you've got to look at the whole thing. And uh, and I'm assuming they're doing that this week. I know a lot of the big brass been around. They have, they have, I mean, I don't have to assume I know because they do this every time, right. When you get eliminated, just spend the next two or three days having kind of exit meetings, including with your staff and self evaluations and Mitchell and that'd be Scott Mitchell, who's the CEO and Orlando, uh, Steinhauer will be having discussions. Uh, and some of those discussions will be about Orlando's. Well, and that's what I was, there's no doubt about it. That's what I was going to ask. So he has two roles here. He's basically the player personnel and coach. And you know, uh, that sometimes has worked out for teams. Other times it just hasn't, it's too much or it doesn't work either way. If you, if he was given the choice, let's say they said to him, like, you got to pick one of these two. Should Orlando Steinauer be coaching or should he be the GM? Coaching. Why? Hands down. Why? Because he's better, because he's better at it. And that's, it. that's what he likes better. It's the closest thing. And, you know, lots of coaches that I've known well in every sport have said it's the closest thing you can get to playing. Right? And because you, you, cause you can have some effect. Uh, once you're GM, you're, your effect is pretty well over, except for periodic fills. Uh, during the year, um, it, it until late September when you can start bringing in the NFL cuts and and occasionally you, you peel things in and there's so much you cannot do as a GM in this league and that is replace Canadian players. Where are they playing? Like they they had as as uh, you know was mentioned during press conferences this week they had players come off the couch to uh, essentially fill up the, those you know twenty fifth twenty you know, 25 through 30 spots on the team, which are pretty well Canadian. And, and uh, so it just, uh, 
that the injuries were a real thing. Now, was part of that. I mean, remembering as 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 head of head of football ops, all of the people in the football ops, meaning all of the, it's kind of a three-headed general managership there right now, right? And with uh, with uh, uh, Spencer uh, and uh, um, Ed Hervey and uh, Drew Alamang and and. Uh, no, I mean that that group itself, including the coaching staff, the whole personnel. They're eight and twenty-two, including the two losses to Montreal in the last two. And so somebody has to answer for that. I think each year, each of those years has been different. I think this year was a was a harder year because, like, very rarely did your number. They had the top. I think they had the best quarterback depth on paper. Depth. I'm talking about not best because other people have better number, proven better number ones. Meaning Zach. Well, probably only Zach. Caleros would, would be a proven better number one, but they had good depth there, and and BC has the best depth right now, one two, but but uh, that doesn't mean they have the best quarterback. That's clearly either the the one in Toronto or the one in Winnipeg. But but uh, um, when you go one and like when your quarterbacks don't start hardly any games, and when when I mean it started right from the start, a fumble and how many interceptions and what six sacks they gave up in the very first game. Now they're going against Winnipeg, who is, who is either first or second best team in the league coming into the year. And, and uh, so I don't know if the players were right. Uh, did they, this team didn't rebuild. They kind of retooled. Well, what about that now? Do they have to do that? Because you've got, you've got Bo Levi Mitchell telling you uh, in the dressing room after the yeah. game that I may not be back. You've got, yeah. that would be, you know, one of the decisions you're going to have to make. You've got some older guys on this team. I mean, I know Simone Lawrence has said that he's not talking retirement, but he's not getting up there. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a bunch doesn't of doesn't mean he'll be here. No, no, but there's a bunch yeah. of decisions that you're going to have to make. Is this a, a team? A ton of them, Scott. An absolute ton of them. Okay, so here's the thing, Steve. And you've got now... you to do what you talked about, too, which is the philosophy. Are they, are they, now you can kind of maybe if you had to do a little bit of rebuilding, you could do it okay. because you don't, you're not hosting the great. Team. Okay, and yes, that said, that said, when you are the team in this league that now has by far the longest Grey Cup drought, yeah. do you have the freedom to do a rebuild or is the pressure building every year? We got to just go for it to try and win this thing, to get this thing done. Can we wait for two or three more years to rebuild this properly? Or is it essential that every single year we have to be going every bit after it? I think it's the latter. And I don't think that they, they will actually, it might look somewhat to us as a bit of a rebuild. Uh, and it depends on, on what, you know, they can get, but they'll go, they'll go out and get some top. I mean, that's just the way it is. Teams change. And the teams that are eight and ten for two years in a row really have to change, um, and I think they have to change some of their key, uh, not I think coaching staff as well. And I think they got to find a way to keep Milanovic, right? And 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 people say, well, let him to take over as head coach. I don't think it works like that. I don't think it works like that at all because they, Orlando had this long kind of description of what a winning culture was, and he thinks he has a winning culture. They just didn't win. And, and, and that sounds ridiculous, but not when you listen to the whole premise and, and the whole bit that, that they, they actually didn't come apart. And I was looking for it. They had a couple incidents all year. And, I, you know, the 15-3 and three team had more incidents than that in the dressing room and, and those kinds of things. They had a couple of guys. I think they had to look at some of the personalities they brought in. Uh, were they, the, you know, and, and that came from, and I'll say this. I think they really still miss. I mean, he's a friend of mine. I'll, I'll come right out and say it. But Sean Burke, uh, uh, who was the de facto GM here, 
and he kept a lot of things in line and he and and uh, and pulled everybody in football ops including the CEO is my understanding things they didn't want to hear and and uh, and that's important to be able to do that and and I, I think Orlando accepts that kind of Christmas and, and I'm just not sure that I think he put too much and I've said this for two years I felt too many key decisions he he delegates well and you can see it on the field when he's running a practice delegates it very well doesn't want to undermine his coordinators or his or their assistants at all but i think he's had to overrule them and go with his own gut because it's his head on the line Mm. more often than he did in each of the last two years there were different things he should have done this year than the things he should have done last year the things he that she should have done last year he learned from and that's why I am a supporter of keeping him on. Also, I've seen what happens in this league when you don't have continuity. You, you might go for two years and have a good year and they don't have anything else. But that doesn't mean that the coach doesn't have to alter a few things. I happen to know how intelligent and how hard he took this. And he will be hard on himself uh, in terms of, okay, I really screwed this part up. This part is me. This part is me. This part is me. Ultimately, it's all him. Because he not only you know he he works for himself right as the head coach he he works for the the head of football ops and and uh, the GMs the the three headed GMs work for him so ultimately all of it falls to him but mm. what does he do to improve himself we are going to see tremendous learner we yeah, are going we to see for sure and I'm really interested honestly Scott I don't know which what it's going to happen here I I assume he's very very safe. I think, you know, as in his job, but it doesn't mean that he won't get really criticized in his own personal meeting with Scott. I, you know, and, and that's probably been happening during the year too. So. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. We'll see about that. We, you know, we, uh, we talked about the great cup. Well, there will not be a tie cats in it. You know what no. else there will not be in it, Steve, from 96 that you referenced, there will be no nylons playing at halftime, which I think is a huge <laughs> missed opportunity to bring back You're, the surviving nylons. You are, you are really hung up on that one. I can't, <laughs> I can't tell your listeners how often you have mentioned that in I just, the last ten years. It's it's when I I mean I was a, I liked the nylons well enough I suppose, but when you think of all the groups you could have had in '96 for the halftime show, it just seems funny in retrospect. I mean, when Green Day is doing it now, but well, that anyway. tells you the difference between having money and not having money. Uh, I guess that's true too. Remember, well, they didn't almost didn't play that game in '96. That's true enough. Uh, Steve Milton will be at the Grey Cup though on the 19th. I'll be sitting beside him, and uh, he'll be. You can read him and leading up to it and all the rest in The Spectator. Steve, appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Okay, Scott. See you later. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Saturday is Remembrance Day. You knew that. I know you knew that. Question is, though, there are places across this country where Remembrance Day is a statutory holiday. It is federally considered a statutory holiday, but... Oh, sorry, it's, well, you know what? I'm going to bring in my next guest because I am even confused about whether it is or is not a federal stat holiday. It seems to be in some places, but not others. Nathan Tidridge is a teacher at Waterdown District High School. He's a civics teacher. Uh, You've probably heard him talk about uh, the monarchy and other things here on the show, but his, uh, his expertise is in civics. Joins us now. Nathan, how are you tonight? Good, Scott. How are you? I am great. I am, I'm admittedly, though, confused because as I'm looking through all this, it seems as though it is, but it isn't a stat holiday in certain places. Others have it, but not really. W- what is the status of Remembrance Day as a stat holiday? I believe it is for government, for the federal government. So federal government officials, 
and then some uh, provincial um, officials as well. But I know for the schools, it's not. It, it depends on the province. But Ontario, Manitoba, and Quebec don't have it. So no. Um, wh- why? I mean, it. it well, wh- why do you think? Well, I would speak. I, my opinion comes as a teacher, and I, I, I'm thinking that it, I enjoy having the students in the schools for Remembrance Day. And so that's my thinking as to why provincially it's not a stat holiday, because it ensures that the students are, are, are in the schools. And so and, and typically schools are doing commemorations. That's my thinking. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I think there's a, a lot of validity to what you said, because I've often wondered when this topic has come up, if you made it a holiday for everybody, I mean, not just, not just yeah. government workers, for everybody, would people really pay attention or would they just go off and do whatever they were going to do and do their own stuff? And some would, of course, some would, yeah. but I wonder if by it, the fact that, as you say, in schools, teachers are doing it. If you're at work, you get to slip out of work and go to an event. Well, people, who doesn't want to slip out of work and go to an event? But at least it's a good event. I mean, I I wonder about that. Yeah, and uh, I'll say for in schools right now, there is a real interest of students in Remembrance Day. Uh, That's something that I've really noticed in my 20 years. I mean, I remember in the 80s when I was in school, and Remembrance Day was, it, it was talked about. There was usually a video or something like that that they would show us. But a lot of schools now do full assemblies. They'll have veterans come in. You know, now we're looking at veterans of, of peacekeeping missions or, or, or more recent missions. But there is a real interest of young people. And so by keeping it in the schools, we're kind of able to, uh, to kind of nurture that interest. I'm kind of surprised with what you're saying, that there's more in the schools only because, and I don't know why I would think this, but things are so sensitive these days and somehow politically correct that somehow I just assume that soldiers and war and other things would be something they'd be trying to clear out of there rather than add to it. I'm I'm pleasantly surprised with what you said, though. Yeah, and I mean, it's a discussion about kind of the human experience of of war and what happens, uh, uh, the relationships and the causes of the war. And I think we have to thank, like, uh, for our generation, it was movies like Saving Private Ryan and, and Band of Brothers. More recently, movies like 1917. Uh, they're, they're so well done, and they really focus on a human level, the experience of, you know, war. As well, a lot of new Canadians that are coming in are coming from from war zones. And so wanting to address that and wanting to talk about those experiences that have become a real part of Remembrance Day. How, okay, that's a great point though, about how many Canadians have arrived from war zones, which automatically then uh, suggests that there will be sides taken, there will be positions on these conflicts. How careful, how delicate do teachers have to be to walk a very fine line not to appear to be taking a side? Well, I think in terms of Remembrance Day, it's all about kind of service of a community or service for your country. And uh, a lot of people can relate to that. So as far as taking a side, I, I, I don't see that too much, to be honest with you. Um, it, it's, kind of, it, it's kind of a day just to reflect on uh, people who have, have, have kind of sacrificed for this place to allow us to have these, mm. these types of conversations. And also, too, there's, there's a lot of reflection now, uh, of course, on uh, Indigenous allies and, and focusing on their contributions as well, uh, you know, as allies with Canada and all of these conflicts. So 
there's actually some really good conversations going on and, and not so much in taking sides or or things like that, but more of, you know, what did these soldiers go through, men and women? Um, what are people going through now? And uh, how do we ensure that this never happens again? One of the ways, and you touched on it a second ago, one of the ways we can do this is there are movies like Saving Private Ryan, for example, that, uh, I mean, people who were in World War II who watched that said that was the closest thing, that was the most accurate portrayal they'd seen. Can you, though, show those kind of things in school to make that point, or is that just too graphic and parents would freak out if you showed that? No, I show it. Uh, I'm teaching uh, two lines of grade 10 Canadian history right now, and I showed uh, 1917, which is a, a brilliant movie, um, and I mean, I, I uh, email all the parents just to let them know that this we're going to show it and give them the ratings and everything like that. And uh, I heard nobody nobody responded uh, negatively. And in fact, a lot of people said that they were. Oh, did I think we lose? Did we lose Nathan there? Yep. I think we're going to try and uh, reconnect. We just had a little technical problem there, but I, I'm a little surprised by that. I, I'm pleased that anyone who's seen Saving Private Ryan or anyone who has seen Band of Brothers and. Let me tell you, if you've never seen either of those, or if you haven't seen one of the two of them, uh, Band of Brothers is a 10-part miniseries. It's a commitment, but I'm telling you, you should watch it. If you can find it streaming somewhere, you should watch it. It is outstanding. And if you, if for no other reason, if you, if you need something to get you into it, you know, uh, why do I want to watch a war miniseries? Well, David Schwimmer is in it as a bad guy. You know, Ross from Friends. If nothing else, there's a... You know, there's a reason to jump in, but no, it is, it is these things give you, I think, cause I, you know, I'm very thankful that I was never forced into combat. These things though, give you a real perspective that you wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, Nathan Tidridge is back with us. Uh, we were just talking about, about being, no, it's okay. But being able to show this, I'm just, I'm very, I'm kind of surprised that that's okay. I'm pleased it is because again, I think. I mean, you're a fantastic teacher, but even with the best teaching you could do, there is something that a movie or something visual can do that you can't. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you always have to be mindful of the, the students that are in front of you and their experiences. And so that always has to be taken into account with whatever that you're going to show uh, in the classroom. But uh, no, students want to learn and, and, and they want to they want to understand. And and, and new Canadians as well, they particularly want to learn. They want to learn the stories of this land and and also share the stories of the places that they're coming from. So, uh, and, and there's some really great movies out there and films and videos and, and resources that are being put out uh, to, help, uh, to help do that. Are, do students wear poppies? Yes, uh, absolutely they do. They, uh, we have a poppy program at our school. And I think what has happened, though, is, and I'm glad the Legion is, it has adjusted to this, which is great. Uh, a lot of students don't carry change. They, they don't carry uh, cash or change anymore. It's all debit or electronic wallets. So at our school, we've actually got tap machines. Uh, we're the first, it's the first time we've had them, and we've noticed that there's been a huge pickup in that. So I, I, I think it was a kind of a, a generational thing. That it, we're moving towards a cashless society, and so um, now that uh, you, can, you can get your poppies using that, it, it, we're noticing a huge uptake. Yeah, no, that, that is, I mean, it's good. All these things are encouraging because there's, I think, and maybe you agree, maybe you disagree. I think there's long been a belief that as the, especially as the veterans of World War II fade away and we are getting to that point that maybe Remembrance Day would also 
kind of go that way. It's encouraging yeah. that that doesn't sound like it's the case. No, they, I mean, I would say uh, from my time as a student uh, to now, I have never seen Remembrance Day more prevalent or more interest in Remembrance Day than now uh, in, in, in students. There's a real, real interest in it, uh, and I, I think it, it came with, with movies and also the realization that we're losing the Second World War veterans. I remember losing the First World War veterans. Um, so, yeah, but it'll be interesting to see what happens to Remembrance Day in, in, for the next 20 years, because thankfully we haven't had a, 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 a world war, although we seem to be really, really going for it, but... Uh, you know, and, and so that's going to change the nature of the day. And we'll see with the next generation how they how they handle that. Well, one other thing, we got to run here, but one other thing that uh, we mentioned about if you had a stat holiday that you may not have the amount of participation. I guess we're going to yeah. get a taste of that a little bit this year because it's on a Saturday. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see if the attendance at these things is the same as it is otherwise, because that would probably be some sort of hint about whether or not making it a stat holiday would can have people not participate as much as if they were at work yeah. or at school. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, Nathan Tidridge from Waterdown District High School, civics teacher there, award-winning civics teacher, by the way. Got to leave, got to put the award-winning part in there. He has. <laughs> and uh, author, many books. And Nathan, always appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Take care. It's, uh, it, it is something, don't, don't forget it for, for Saturday. Um, whatever you're doing on Saturday, don't, uh, it's really, I understand. I mean, I don't want to admit this, but I will. Uh, once or twice, it's you get caught up in something, and all of a sudden you look at the clock, and it's three or four minutes after eleven because you're, especially with COVID, when you're home, you're not somewhere, and you know you, oh man, how did that slip by? Almost slip by, whatever. It's uh, be be conscious of it because it's um, these days in particular, these days in particular with what's going on in the world, you you just. Well, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I am very thankful for the people who were young men, mostly young men. I mean, I suppose young women now, but back in the the World Wars, young men who were out there doing things that I just, again, hate to admit this, but I'm not sure I could have done. I mean, maybe. You ever thought about that? Maybe. If, if, If it was a different age, could you have done the things that we know those people who were 16, 17, 18, 19 did, I, I would like to believe maybe under the circumstance that I could have done that and made that kind of a difference. I don't know. I don't know. I've never been in that position. Thankfully, hope I never will, but it is, uh, but it is, it's okay to be thankful. It's, it's right to be thankful for what they did. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. 
Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.